a sin is a serious matter. It, it, it's something we and the church deal with in our own lives and in the lives of others really on a daily basis. And though we're all too familiar with it, it's not very easy for us to, um, to talk about it in a meaningful way. I mean, if we're really to understand what sin means to our world and the effect that it has on people's lives, we, we have to have some grasp of just how grave it really is. Uh, maybe one way to do that is not to think about uh, sin in its most ugly expressions, but rather to consider something much less drastic. Um, a sin which, well, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how to put it, but a sin which is so small that and it's almost no sin at all. Maybe an example of that would be a lie that a small child tells. I have to tell you, as a parent, I remember the way I recoiled in my own soul when my first child said something that I knew wasn't true. The concern I felt for them, because I love them. And I want them to live in the favor of the Lord. Still, most of us find it uh, easy to forgive the child, and we, we hope we can deal with that in an appropriate way. But you, you take that sin as an example. And, and then understand that that sin, as common as it is, committed by just a child, is enough to condemn the entire world. And that one sin would still require the death of the Son of God for its remission. Now, when we put it that way, we begin intellectually to get an idea of what we're really talking about when we talk about sin. But we have another problem when we're trying to talk about it, and that is it's hard for us to appreciate that truth emotionally when we're merely discussing it. It becomes almost just a kind of a cold fact. I mean, we feel the burning of that truth in our own souls when we ourselves sin, and we feel that remorse and the guilt and the pain. But at that point, we, we aren't wanting to have a conversation about it. We want to confess it and find God's good favor and once again in our lives. And sometimes we feel the weight of that truth when someone sins against us in a particularly devastating way. And, and then, too, we find ourselves dealing with the emotions of that and the forgiveness that we need to offer others. I mean, if we were able, when we talk about sin, it would be a good thing if we could keep in our minds both the grave nature of sin, what it means not just to the individual, but to others and even the world as a whole, and a sense of the personal devastation, the things we feel when we experience it, either from our own failure or the failures of others. Now, if for just a moment we could attempt to hold those two things together in our mind, that emotion and the fact, and then imagine that you're sitting down at a table with God. And he's on one side and you're on the other. And he says to you, 
because of your sin, I cannot allow you into my heaven. If you can imagine that, I, I think you can have some appreciation of why he would say that and what your real position is. Sometimes in theological discussions or, or when we talk with an unbeliever, we try to make that same point by saying, you know, God would be completely just. He would be within all of his rights if he destroyed all of humankind because of our sin. And when we say that, we say that to get across the point, to, to try to communicate the seriousness of sin. Now, again, just imagine you're at that table, and you've just heard God say those awful words to you. I think it would say, wouldn't you? I mean, if you could muster the strength, if you could find the courage, you'd say, dear God, isn't there a way? Isn't there something you could do, anything at all? And you'd be really glad if he said what he has, in fact, already said. Well, yes, there is a way, but it is the only way, and it is narrow. Wouldn't you cry out, then, show me, please, God, that way, and lead me in it? Our world complains against our faith that we're too narrow. Well, we really are rejoicing that there is any way at all to salvation. And, you know, it's that narrow way that we're going to talk about this morning. At least we're going to try to. It's a subject of our text as we are making our way through the book of Romans. And so I'd ask you to join me again in that book, uh, Romans chapter 2, where we're going to be looking at verse 17 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 8. And of course, Jim will, or whoever's up there today, Heidi, <laughs> will make sure it's up on the screen on either side here as we uh, talk about this narrow way. Now, we're going to have to translate what Paul writes here to our own day and time. He, he's addressing the church at Rome, and in that church, uh, and in the community at large, where the Roman church was, there were two groups of people. Uh, there were the Jews, and there were the Gentiles, and, and there were tensions between them that were affecting the church, which Paul addresses throughout this book. But what Paul was doing here is maybe a little different. What he's doing is he's using the extremes of these two groups to illustrate the dangers on either side of this narrow path that we are called to walk, the danger that is on one side or the other. And, um, and it really is far too easy for us to do to wander off that path uh, when we do that, whether we go this side or this side, we are in error, and they're kind of an opposite mistake, but in either direction, we're still off that path, and one isn't really any better than the other. But I think by being aware of them, I think it, it really can help us to better avoid either one of those two errors. Now, the two errors that we're going to look at are legalism. That's one of them. And, and it's thinking that the Christian life is a set of rules which we have to keep and which we require others to keep. 
And that's represented to us here in this text by the Jews. And then maybe the theological term would be antinomianism or what others of us might call a kind of a cheap grace or, or even worse, that our actions really aren't all that important. And, and this is represented to us by the Gentiles. Though Paul doesn't name them as such. I think it's clear in the text that uh, that's who he has in mind. And the narrow way really lies between those two extremes, the legalism and the ignoring it all uh, that our actions have any request. Both of those groups fall into the error, and I think they do so because of their thinking about sin. It is not clear. It's not accurate. It's not real. It's in some manner twisted. Uh, that's not the only problem that they have, but it's certainly part of it. So what we're going to do now is we're going to consider that first error which brings, uh, which Paul brings up here, and that's this error of legalism. And I think there's no doubt that that's, uh, that's probably the most common thing that we may encounter and the one that maybe needs the most explanation. So Paul asks here, as he begins in this text, a series of rhetorical questions, um, uh, which I think paint a really pretty good picture of the kind of people that he's talking about. So beginning in verse 17, all the way through, uh, I believe, verse 22, uh, we read this. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior, because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law and the embodiment of knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So we see here, people have a really good concept of what the law says, but they have a couple of serious problems. The first of which is they are suffering from spiritual pride. I mean, they're proud of their Jewish heritage, and that in and of itself isn't wrong, but it doesn't stop there. In their minds and their hearts, they think of themselves as superior. They see themselves as a guide, as a light in the dark, as an instructor for those who are foolish, a teacher of mere infants. It's how they see themselves. It's how they think of themselves because they know the truth. They know it. And because of that, they think they're better than others. Now, we ought to understand also what the other side of that is. Uh, they are in reality also looking down on those other people. In, in their heart, they condemn them. They see them as simply blind and dark and foolish infants. So they're proud and condemning at the same time. But knowing the truth is not enough. The, the other problem that they have is they talk a good game but they can't manage to bring it off. They're hypocrites. And Paul pointedly asks them, if you're saying any of these things, why are you doing the opposite of it? And Paul summarizes these questions in verse 23 when he says, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? I mean, they know the law. They know what it says. They set it up as a standard, and they impose that standard on others 
They're going to instruct those blind and those darkened people, those children and those foolish people. But they don't quite keep the law themselves. And by their actions, they simply dishonor God. But, but it's even worse than that because because of their legalism, they incite a kind of disdain for the character of God. And so we read in verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of him. So this legalism incites a kind of disdain for God. They set a standard for other people. They're quick to tell them what's right and what's wrong, but they don't live up to it themselves. And somehow, somehow people end up blaming God for that. Now, these people take sin seriously enough for others but they kind of give themselves a pass. See, when we stray off that narrow path into legalism, though we might not really start there, we, we end up in, uh, in the sin of spiritual pride, and we end up condemning others, which we ought never to do. And, and we can't keep what we impose on others, and so we become hypocrites. And in doing all of that, we dishonor God, and we cause others to think ill of our God. Now, now, just for completeness, because I want to cover the whole text, I want to read to you verses 25 through 27, and I kind of want to summarize them for you. We don't have time to go into them in, in great detail, but I'm going to read them and then just kind of summarize it. Circum circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who's not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a law burger. So look, what he's saying here is the circumcision is a sign of the covenant. And the Jew would often point to that as evidence that they were part of God's kingdom. But the legalist does something else. The legalist points to his or her doctrine, and, and they say that right doctrine is, is what I have, and that's what proves that I'm okay here, that I'm part of God's kingdom. And Paul's trying to show us that anyone who wants to make his or her way into heaven, if you want that, just having circumcision or just having the right doctrine isn't enough. You have to live it out perfectly. And if anyone could do that, even if they didn't have your doctrine, and even if they didn't have circumcision, they would be able to condemn you though you did have those things, but you don't live it out. And of course, no one other than Jesus has ever been able to live out the life that we're called to live without any sin at all. And the rest of us need some other way. And look, the danger of legalism is what it does to your heart. You, you get off the narrow path and you find yourself in there and you're not looking at yourself so much anymore. You're looking at what other people are doing. And, and, and you're thinking about those things that you're too pretty good with, right? Because we're not all uh, uh, tempted in the same way. And so there are things that can happen in front of me. It doesn't, it doesn't efface me. It doesn't affect me. I'm not tempted to that sin. And I pretty, feel pretty strong there, but it's your sin, and I see what you're doing, and I tell you what it is that you're doing, 
and then I feel pretty good. And when I do that, it keeps me from looking for the only way out of the dilemma that I find myself in. Now, I have to tell you, the legalists didn't get it quite all wrong. They had one right thing anyway. Uh, they knew the Word of God was important, and so we, we can see that if we jump down to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. It says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very Word of God. Now, I have to tell you something. Um, uh, Paul doesn't go on here and enumerate uh, all of the advantages there are of being a Jew. And he's not starting an enumerated list here, which he somehow fails to complete. Uh, you read the commentaries, and everybody says, well, this is typical of Paul. He starts a list, and then he doesn't go on with it. You know, he says, first for A, and never follows it with B. Now, that's not what Paul is doing here. He's saying that the most important thing the Jews had going for them was the Word of God, and all the other advantages they had came from having God's Word. The problem was twofold. They had a warped concept of sin. So they didn't apply the word evenly. And secondly, they didn't really understand God's way out of sin. They kind of dwelt in a world of works, not of grace. Though they themselves failed time after time after time. The closest they could come to keeping the law to try to make others do it. Now, in verses 3 and 4, Paul addresses the fact that there were Jews who, although they had the advantage of the Word of God, didn't recognize the Messiah when he came. And then I think he really kind of subtly switches to addressing the Gentiles uh, on the other side of this narrow way. And so this is what he writes here in verse 3 and following. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? I mean, not all, not at all, he says. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved when you speak and prevail when you judge. You see, God's word is true, and he is faithful even when people are not. And his judgment of Jew and Gentile is always right. And so from this point forward to the end of our passage, Paul addresses that error on the other side of the path. Those who misunderstand sin, the seriousness of it, and they end up thinking it really doesn't matter. In fact, as we go through it, you, you see as they argue their case, they become a little bit more and more foolish as they make their way through. And again, what Paul does is he asks a series of rhetorical questions and paints a picture of the kind of people talking about. So let's look together at verses 5 through 7. But if our righteousness, Paul writes, if our unrighteousness, I mean, brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. So Paul's pointing out that this isn't what the scripture says, but what some people are arguing. And he's emphatic in his denial when he says, certainly not. <laughs> it's as though he's saying, look, don't be silly. And then he goes on. He says, if that were so, how could God judge the world? You see, he's reminding them of something I think every human being knows. I think, they, I think we know it in our heart. 
that that God will indeed judge the world. And, and, and they knew that. You know that. The people you meet on the street know that. These people go even further. Verse 7, they say, someone, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? So it's true in a sense that God's righteousness becomes even clearer when it's set next to our sin. You know, you take a, 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 a dirty T-shirt, stained and yellowed and just old, and you lay it on a crisp, clean tablecloth without a stain on it. And, and you see how clean that tablecloth is. And then your wife says, get that thing off of there. Well, that, well, that's what's going on here. They're saying, you know, God's righteousness becomes even clearer, but these people are going to say, and God ought not to be angry with us. We make him look good. And, and they go further, and they say, therefore, he shouldn't condemn us. The things we're doing really don't matter. God's glory doesn't change. And verse 8 reveals the absurdity of their argument. And if you follow it to its natural conclusion, why not say, as some slanderously claim we say, let us do evil that good may result. And their condemnation is just. You know, if all of the reasoning was accurate, if God really was glorified by their sin, he shouldn't be angry with them because of it. And, and, and why not do even worse things to make God look better? Condemnation by God is the just end of anyone who would believe that nonsense. You see, that's the other side of the path that we stray off onto. I, I mean, it's a place where people really don't take sin seriously at all. You know what the, the cry, their mantra is? It's, don't judge me, they'll tell you. I'm not under the law anymore. You see, they've forgotten if they ever the horror of the weight of their sin. So they don't look for a way out. The legalist, on the other hand, is on the other side of that path. Not understanding the horror of their sin, they still try to make their own way out. So on either side of it, you're in a miserable place. Whether you're the legalist over here who thinks you can work your way out, who thinks you can keep a set of laws and cover your own track by pointing out the sin of others, or if you're, you're the antinominalist over here that thinks my sin doesn't make any difference, it, it doesn't matter in this world. You're both in a miserable place. You know what happens sometimes? Sometimes what happens is this person over here recognizes that this legalism is deadly. It kills and they flee from that, and it's kind of like a pendulum swing, and they end up over here. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've seen that. I can't tell you how often I've been tempted myself because I became a believer in a legalistic church to go too far this direction. It's because of sin in us. And then the people on this side, sometimes they say, 
how could I ever think that my sin didn't make any difference and that pendulum swings the other way and they, they become this strict, rigid rule keeper. Now, see, it's between those two extremes that our way lies, which Paul very briefly in, in two verses describes, and he does so in the middle of this passage with one arrow on one side of it and one arrow on the opposite side. And, and, and it's just as we have to navigate this narrow path between them. And it's just two verses. It itself is kind of a, a narrow path between these two wastelands. But the truth of the matter is Paul is going to spend the rest of the book talking about that way. So Paul does something that would have been better understood in his day than in ours, or even in our culture at an earlier point in our history when we knew more about God's Word and and theology. Paul spiritualizes uh, the term Jew when he says in verses 28-29, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is not circumcision Uh, circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit not by the written code and such people's praise is not from other people but from God now I know there's a lot going on here and much of the rest of the book is going to deal with this idea that we find in a kind of most germinal form right here but Paul's saying at the very least if you want not condemnation you want praise from God. If you want to be one of his chosen people, that is a, a Jew spiritualized, that's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of God through his spirit working in us to make us what we ought to be. When, when we forget what sin really means it's easy to find ourselves here or here when we forget that sin is what brought our savior to this world to die in our place we find ourselves often over here or here not a matter of keeping rules and it's not a matter of ignoring sin it's a matter of heart it's a matter of walking in the power of the spirit and you know what helps us in that is we have what the thing that gave them all of the privileges that they enjoyed. We have the Word of God. And and so we, we have this eternal truth. And we have to learn to take that truth and apply it evenly in our lives, the lives of other people. Not in condemnation. Not in excuse. But in reality, recognizing sin for what it is and the only way out of it is through the cross. 
you're some of the greatest people I've ever met. <laughs> I, I'm telling you this in truth. Ann and I have been here how many years now? I guess I'm on my fifth year as pastor. But we came here two, three, four years, whatever it's been before I became pastor. We walked in this church that first day. <laughs> we felt like we'd come home. I, I, I love you. We love you. We love our church. And I think so highly of you. Out of you. I would never be ashamed to bring anyone here. Never think that you would in any way ever shame me. But you and I are as good as you are. You don't make it into heaven in your own steam. Our sin is an awful took it away. It's not about keeping rules. It's not about ignoring it. It's about walking a narrow path between those two extremes. Walking with our God day in and day out. And, and to the best of our ability, trying to live simple and as hard as that. So, uh, kind of a lot of material. And if you were like me, you'd be sitting there thinking, I wonder why he didn't say something about this. Or if you really have a question, like I come and see. And then I'll say, well, I can find it for you in a book somewhere. <laughs> but what I really want is I want you to remember ugly that sin was and how much Christ loved you to take it away and then walk with him to death and then let's help each other do that would you pray with me now please Father thanks uh, again um, that though we were um, lost and we were in uh, an awful swamp that we were confounded at every turn because of our own sin, our own character, our own failings. We couldn't get out of our own way, Lord. We were utterly helpless. And you looked on us, and, and Lord, you didn't excuse a thing we did. You never did. You do something much more wonderful. You forgive and you did so at the greatest price that we could ever imagine. You sent our sin, your son, to take our sins in his body on that cross. And you did that so we could die to sin. 